And I'm Rebecca Lair, and we are the Mashup Americans, the show for people who live between identities, cultures, and sometimes even countries. Yes. I mean, I feel that last part is so crucial, the way that mashups relate to their home country or the country that their family is from. I mean, it's all different for every person. Totally. And why you left or why your family left makes a big difference. Like, I, for me, my family, of after... A few diasporic <laughs> escapes <laughs> no big deal. Ha- left no big deal. <laughs> Just like, you know, there's the there's the the Chernovitz to Berlin <laughs> to Brazil to this is like in one person, my grandma, to El Salvador. And then in a when I was born, my grandparents were already living in in Israel. And there was a civil war in El Salvador at that time. So I even though my parents got married in El Salvador just a couple years before I was born, I didn't actually go there until the peace treaty was signed. And so I have Israel as a home place, but actually going to El Salvador for the first time with my grandparents in the early 90s was suddenly like so illuminating mm. to who who we were and who we are. It's all complicated and ever evolving. And, you know, war. And war. Our guest today, Wendy De La Rosa, knows all about going between countries. So we first became aware of Wendy from this year's Forbes 30 Under 30 finance list. And she is one of our people. Wendy is an immigrant from the Dominican Republic. She grew up in the Bronx. She worked for Goldman Sachs in high school, went to the Wharton School at UPenn. She's a Soros fellow and is currently getting a PhD from Stanford in consumer behavior. Well, I didn't manage to work for Goldman in high school, but I'll still claim her as one of our people. That <laughs> feels good to me. Um, still haven't worked there yet. <laughs> <laughs> Wendy is also the founder of the Common Sense Lab, which aims to teach fintech companies how real people use their money. And that includes how they spend, how they save, how they invest. And her work is super practical and really is aiming to meet people where they are to help them be better with their money. Yep. And we actually got some really good advice from her about our Postmates habits. Well, that's where Mm -hmm. you are. So she's just meeting you there. She met me right there in my apps. (laughs) It's a process. Well, so Wendy's mashiness comes through in meeting us where we are and also in her love of the Bronx, her family, and most importantly, Platanos. Wait, where are you getting platanos in Stanford, which is not known to be a mecca of brown diversity? Well, Redwood City, there are a lot of brown people in California. They're just not you, in Stanford. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's rough. Actually, whenever my husband messes up, he takes me to a restaurant an hour and a half away in Marin called Seoul. It's a Puerto Rican restaurant. It's very, very good. Mm. That's where I found a platano. So I know anytime we go there or you see us there, I know that my husband has messed up and is trying to apologize <laughs> deeply. That feels like a good and apology. I would also like to say, as somebody who has been to Marin, also surprising that that's a place one would get good platanos. <laughs> yes. um, <laughs> okay, so we want to get started on talking a little bit about you and your your 
origin story. So where were you born? Where'd you grow up? So I was born in Santo Domingo, which is the capital of the Dominican Republic. Uh, both of my parents are Dominican, and so are their parents. So deeply rooted in that beautiful, beautiful island. We immigrated, my mom and I immigrated to the United States. Uh, my mom came first. So it was a little bit of a rough period where you know, I'm a, you're a kid away from your from your mother uh, but then she was able to get enough resources, buy a plane ticket, and I was able to immigrate to the Boogie Down Bronx. And, you know, at first, I love, love, love the Bronx, but at first I was so disillusioned because in my mind, the United States was this amazing place where the roads were paved of gold. I just thought right. it was going to You'd be You'd watch an American tale a lot of times. Right. Like, mm-hmm. I just thought it was going to be Wall Street, you know, in every single part of, of the United States. And we ended up moving into my grandmother's apartment that became sort of the landing spot for anybody in my family who was immigrating. And so it, it was a little bit of a shock where I was like, wow, the food tastes different. I'm in a... I'm in this like four story walk up. <laughs> right. Like, what it, is a walk up? Like, there's no palm trees. <laughs> right. Why? I was like, Why where, isn't the beach here? Where are the golden roads? It was a it was a little bit of a shock, and but you know, then I then I just made the Bronx my home. So I went to public school, elementary school, public school, middle school. Had great teachers who really believed in me, even though I didn't speak the language. I had one one professor, Mr. Ojeda, who who sort of noticed that I was pretty good at math, uh, but I just couldn't articulate it as well. And he just supported me all the way and recommended me to gifted programs. And, you know, once someone gives you a shot, it becomes this rolling snowball where then other people are more likely to give you a shot. And then over time, that sort of just builds and so I was able to, I still went to high school in the Bronx, Cardinal Spellman, which is a private Catholic high school. where Sonia Je- Sotomayor went. Yeah. She, Tia she, Sonia. Tia yes. Sonia. It's funny. She actually, when I was in high school, she came to give a talk during career day. And, you know, at the time, she, obviously, she wasn't a Supreme Court justice. And my little high school self it's just like, when is this woman going to get off? I really want to talk to like the local celebrity. <laughs> like, right. She was giving us all these like golden nuggets of information yeah. on how to become successful. Yeah. And I was like, no, I just want to talk to the local weatherman. Like yeah. he's a celebrity. Pat Kiernan. Oh, Pat Kiernan. Right. Right. Oh right. God. We're such jerks <laughs> when we're young. You know, I'm curious, did you feel a difference like as somebody who had immigrated from the Dominican Republic and having like a different sort of lens or did you f- just feel like you slotted right into the Bronxiness of it all? No, I, I felt like I slotted right in. You, there, there were essentially two big waves of Dominican immigration, and I'm not a historian at all, so I'm sure I'm going to get some of these dates wrong. But, you know, somewhere in the early 70s and then again in the late 80s and early 90s, that was th- those were the two big waves. And so everybody around me was either an immigrant like my, myself or the daughter of an immigrant. Mm. And all of us, you know, if spent our summers in the Dominican Republic or, you know, if you behave badly, your punishment was to (laughs) was always you're going to get sent back home. You better act right, which actually happened to one of my cousins. (laughs) He got got sent back for a year to you know get his act together. So I actually didn't know 
or realize that my experience was unique until I went to Penn, until I went to Wharton, where I realized, oh, actually people can trace their heritage in the United States back multiple generations. <laughs> oh, like, you know, it's, it's yeah. not normal to just travel back, quote unquote, home every summer. And that was really where, where my eyes were open because, again, in New York, you can't escape Dominicans, right? We're, we're anywhere and everywhere. And I, I think that I was just really lucky to have that where I didn't feel an identity crisis of being Afro-Latina, right? Of like, what what is it? Which is another mashup, right? What does mm-hmm. it mean to be Black and speak Spanish? I didn't have to deal with those questions until I went to college where mm. people were confused. Like, why are you speaking Spanish? And you know, my answer is like, well, what do you expect? The boats landed all over. Like, this isn't <laughs> like a surprise. Uh, this is the norm. Deal with it. But but that was when I realized that, you know, my experience wasn't as cookie cutter as I thought. But also what's interesting, we would posit that ours as mashups is the normal. It got, and the, the experience that we have meeting the multi-generation wasps is like, who? What? That's weird. Like, I feel that when I first met Wasp, I was like, you came on a, the Mayflower? Get out of here. <laughs> what does that even mean? Where do you go on vacation? Where's your Where's your grandma live? You, you know, you just mentioned this sort of your Afro-Latina identity. And you've spoken a little bit about how in the U.S. it feels like there's been kind of an erasure of some of your Latina identity because of that, like people not understanding it. You know, how have you dealt with that? Do you, you feel more closely identified with your Latina origins or your blackness? Or is that even a question that you're kind of thinking through? That's an excellent question. And I think the, my answer to that has changed over time. And so when I lived on the East Coast, the most important part of my identity was my Latinidad, right? Because again, it wasn't something unusual for people to meet other people like me. Mm-hmm. Mm. But when I moved to the West Coast and when I moved to Palo Alto and San Francisco, it was a shock for everybody. And the first thing that they identify when they see me is that, hey, this is a black person. And then all of the positives, but also all of the negatives that are associated with blackness in our society get attached to that. And and because that's a primary thing that I have to fight, I feel like my my black identity has has become more important, right? Because that, that's essentially like what I'm fighting each and every day, right? Like when I go to my Trader Joe's and I get the awkward stares from, you know, XYZ soccer mom, they're not thinking, who the hell is this Dominican woman, this Afro-Latina? They're, you know, they're, they're probably thinking, who the hell is this black person here? And why haven't I seen them before? <laughs> And so I knew the one I knew the one <laughs> I know, right. just, I don't I'm not laughing at your experience, just laughing at the soccer moms at Trader Joe's being idiots. <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, we uh, you know, my husband and, and, and it also has to do with the fact that I married a black man, a beautiful, tall black man. And our children are going to be beautiful black babies. And so because of that, my black identity has just become more powerful. But when we moved here, you know, we we moved into a great building and anytime my husband was in the elevator and the elevator doors would open, the person in front, usually a woman, would scream. And so after the fourth no. time it happened, yeah, after the fourth time it happened, we had to send a little email to our building saying, hi, we're your new neighbors. We're so excited to live here. Here's a picture of us just in case. 
Like, please don't be afraid. Uh, oh you know, trying to trying to say it in the <laughs> nicest way possible, but also like, come on, you know, this is the fourth time it happened. So wait, that's actually like the visual of it again, it's just so horrific and hilarious. Like it's literally like a get out scene. Like somebody's Seriously. in the, like, the elevator opening and, and screaming. screaming. It's so right. crazy. You know, the first time it happened, I was startled because I thought I was getting attacked. You know, I was like, what? <laughs> and then the second time, I just asked the person straight up, like, why are you screaming? And then they just kept apologizing profusely. But I was like, no, but but why? Did something, did something happen to you? Like, what, what happened? And, you know, it was so they just can't articulate it, right? And so they, they just... You mean they Kept can't apology. be like, well, it turns out I'm a racist who's never been confronted with it because I've only lived in white communities. Right. Or that you're biased. Right. Yeah. And that so I'm excited to talk to you in a few years or whenever it is that you do choose to have children about how when having children, given that you're both, you know, your husband is black and your blackness, how then you engage your Latinidad then in, in order to make sure it exists in your family. Oh, we already have a contract for that. Oh, we, I, no, no, no. Marriage, marriage is a series of compromises. Until like, you know, my husband has already signed up to the fact that we're gonna speak Spanish in the household, and mm-hmm. I don't want to lose that. I feel so proud that my mom had the foresight to say, "No, you're you're going to learn Spanish, and you're gonna continue to speak Spanish, no matter what," and, and really reinforce that in me. And I want to do the same to to my children. Now, you know, other ways in which it will, may manifest, we'll see. But I know that for sure. Well, their first food is going to be platanos. That's I mean, and that's that's really what's going. <laughs> that's really what's going to happen. Actually, when when my husband went to meet my family in the Dominican Republic, one of my uncles actually gave him a cooking class on how to properly cut and cook plantains. Good so for them. He, he really can't escape it. No, you're like, you have no excuses, senor. So, okay, I want to step into money a little bit, which is what was a conversation about money like when you were younger? How did your family organize their finances? That's a great question. And I think that is the inspiration to all of my research. So as as you know, all of my research focuses on financial decision making. But at the time when we immigrated, the topic of money was at the forefront of all of our conversations because we didn't have any. And so it was a constant, constant topic of conversation. And I remember even as a middle schooler, I was keenly aware as to how much money everybody in our household was making. And I was also keenly aware about how predatory some credit card companies were, right? Because as soon as the the phone would ring mm-hmm. and someone you know, that wasn't a Spanish speaker got on. It was like, Wendy, Wendy, come here, pretend to be so-and-so and, you know, let me know. And so whether it was bill collectors calling, mm. you know, I had to put on my grown-up voice and pretend to be so-and-so and say, oh, I'm so sorry. We did send a check. Let me... Let, let me just check with the post office, you know, mm. <laughs> trying to just buy more time. Or when credit card letters would show up at the house all of the time saying, you know, you can get $10,000 right now. You know, it was because most of my family wasn't fluent at the time in English. It was the responsibility of my generation to read, interpret and, and, and make small decisions about what was spam and what was important 
And because of that experience, I just got a massive lesson on financial decision making very early on. And I think most immigrants have have the same experience, right? Whoever whoever can speak English the fastest and the best is mm-hmm. going to be the de facto translator. And it mm-hmm. doesn't matter if you're a child or an adult, we just have to get by and and try to make sense of this world as quickly as possible. How did you get here and you're like, this is the apartment in the Bronx where everybody's going to, right? So we have a, a relatively soft, if not very full landing spot. And how does the whole crew, the whole extended family, kind of support each other or figure out financially, like, were there shared finances or what was the what was the deal in the house, given how little there was and how many people there were? How'd you guys figure that out? Yeah. So I, I think everybody was responsible for certain expenses and certain parts of the rent. And so, you know, so and so was responsible for the groceries and so and so is responsible for X percentage of the rent. And, and it was really broken up by type of expense. Mm. And at the same time, there was a very real recognition that in order for my mom and I to move out, we needed to save money aggressively. And and so there was a shared feeling that I'm not going to stretch every single person in this household. Like part of the reason why we're here and we're struggling together is because we want to not be here for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So in order to do that, we have to save aggressively. You know, it's really interesting as as you say that, like, I, I wonder when your first like really explicit memory of of money or an, or an interaction with money became clear to you or this idea of support. Because I remember, you know, growing up in Chicago, it was more common that there was another family living with us, another Korean immigrant family, than there was not. Whether that was like my mom's younger sister and her young kid living in the extra bedroom. So then me and my sister slept in the same bed for a while because the three of them my aunt and her husband and their oldest daughter were like sleeping in our bedroom or it was like a friend of the family who was coming to the U.S. from Korea for like a a, a, a short job, but they didn't have housing. So then they, you know, lived with us for three months. Like and I, it wasn't until like it, I don't think I ever thought about it when it happened. Cause I was like, oh, this is just what happens. I did have a stark realization when I went to Penn. And it was the first time that I ever had my own room, mm. you know, four, four walls in the United States, right? It was the first time that I had four walls to myself. And I remember crying. <laughs> like, I don't even know what to do with this much space. And so that, that, was, that was a stark experience of having so much space to yourself, having the ability to have that level of privacy even though it was in a dorm and I was sharing a room with four other girls, but each woman had their own room. You know, there are so many benefits, I think, that I really benefited from this experience. So I came home and there was always somebody home. There was always somebody there to take care of me. My grandmother was such a primary caretaker. You know, I, I have memories of her sitting me down at the kitchen table and pretending to review my homework Hmm, and yelling at me to do my homework. (laughs) Yeah, because she and we both knew 
that she didn't understand what was on my piece of paper, mainly because it was in English. But she still you know, was yelling at me to get it done. And, and I am so appreciative of that. Well, so what are some of the most pivotal things that you've learned about how people manage their money since you've started the Common Sense Lab? And also, have you identified cultural differences in how people make decisions around money? Many. <laughs> uh, and we can, yes, we can chat about this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we can chat for a month. But I, I think the biggest learning for me has been this. So our initial hypothesis most people have this hypothesis that if you want to help people save money, let me teach you how to save. Let me give you financial literacy classes. Let me give you financial education classes. But the theory is that if I teach you how to do it, then you'll go off and do it. Study after study, we find this. And it's because the information doesn't come just in time, right? Like we all know that we shouldn't text and drive. There's no information gap there and yet we still do it. We're, you know, most of us are trying to lose a little weight and we know what we need to do. We need to exercise more. How and dare eat you? Things, How right? dare you? <laughs> but we know, we know what to do. Yeah. And yet, you know, every new year I still have the same new year's resolution. I need to, you know, shed X number of pounds. And financial decision making is the same, right? Like people fundamentally understand if I spend less, I'm going to be able to save more. Is that really how it works? I don't know. (laughs) Amazon Prime is so nice. Oh, my God. And things just show up in my house. Those motherfuckers. And the way the app buzzes when you put the thing in the shopping cart. Oh, it's like such a... Those haptics. Right. Right. (laughs) And, and, And so, you know, by the time you go onto Amazon, whatever class you took two years ago, four years ago, five years ago, maybe even a month ago, it's not like we remember that that information right then and there. And so the most important part in my mind is really changing the environment in which you make financial decisions. So I'll give you I'll give you an example of a concrete example of that. Through common sense, we uh, we really analyze how people save and, and what are the tools available to, to them to save. And if, you know, I go to any major bank my standard way of saving is to set up an automatic deposit from my checking into my savings every month, let's say on the 25th of the month, right? A monthly automatic transfer. The problem with that type of structure is that it doesn't take into account the entire environment. So the majority of Americans, roughly about 70% of Americans, get paid on a weekly or a biweekly basis, meaning that my income, I'm not going to be sure if I'm going to have $100 every 25th of the month. Because when I get money, varies either on a weekly basis or a biweekly basis. And so I may be scared to even set that up because it may just be a recipe for, for me overdrafting. What about if we actually tie your savings to when you get paid? And so if you get paid this week, you save you know 10% of it. If you get paid a lot, you save more. If you get paid less, you don't save. I think we often think about saving as the last step of the process. So I spend whatever it is I need to spend and then I save. This flips it on its head and says, let me save first and whatever I have left, that's what I have to spend. I mean, I think there's something uh, that I'm really curious about as far as like when talking about money, it is like the third rail of relationships, uh, often of families. It is in workplaces. And money just carries so much 
baggage with it. And it's such a complex subject. And we all kind of get that intuitively. And every different culture, every different family within those cultures, like has a different way of approaching it. In your research, have have you kind of revealed any reasons for why that is? Like, why is money so hard to talk about? Yeah, we we actually wrote up a short blog post on Scientific American trying to detail why it's hard to have that conversation. And you can imagine there's a number of reasons, right? Oftentimes we bicker about money because we're coming at it from different perspectives. Uh, some of us psychologists like to label them as tightwads or spendthrifts, right? And so and those two types of mind frames are just a constant tension with one another. But you need to have those conversations. And so one of the things that we recommended, at least in this blog post, is set a date on the calendar. Just set a date on the calendar when you're actively going to have this conversation. And so it, it that pulls away some of the lens of, oh, you're nagging me again. You you know, there's there's never a right time to talk about money. There's never going to be the right time. And so that alleviates some of the pressure from the person in the household that's constantly bringing it up. Nope. It's on the calendar. You knew we were going to talk about it at this point. It's not going to be a surprise. Great. Now let's have a conversation to talk about it. The second thing I would say is there are certain parts of your budget that you can change. Your rent, your auto payment, your cell phone payment. Like You cannot change that tomorrow. That's a more complex decision, right? If your rent is too high or your mortgage is too high, you now have to decide whether or not you want to move. That's going to take some time. You can't change that tomorrow. But the decisions that you can change tomorrow are typically how much you eat out and your ride-sharing apps. Stop trolling me, (laughs) You know what? Caviar, I was saying they should hire me as an advertisement for how a mom with a little too much money but not quite enough is convinced to get delivery from her favorite restaurants. Okay, so let me talk to you personally then. (laughs) You need me. No, but, you know, it's one of these things where every day 10, 11 bucks doesn't, doesn't seem to be like a large amount of money, but over the period of a month... It really makes a meaningful dent. Mm -hmm. We've done qualitative and quantitative research, and we found that one of the things that people regret the most after bank fees is eating out. Right? But I love to eat out. I love it. I love it so much. Yeah. Do you regret it at the end of the month? Uh, Well, that would require only because we're not doing good budgeting. (laughs) What I've said, right? (laughs) So, so here's here's my recommendation. When you think about your budget. We're not we're not computers. And most of the time when we think about a budget is to say, okay, I'm only going to spend a hundred dollars this week on eating out. Great. You're not going to be able to tally that up every single day so that if you eat caviar today, you're like, okay, I spent twelve dollars. Okay, now I know I only have eighty eight dollars left. Okay, no, that's that's not how we go about our day. We want to think about what I call a frequency budget. And so tell yourself this week. I'm only going to eat out three times a week. And so, you know, if you eat out once, you only have two times left. And that, I think, is a better way to match how our minds essentially think. Right? We're not going to be able to add up all those numbers, but we can remember when we did certain things. Mm-hmm. And we can essentially count the three or four or whatever you know frequency budget you want to give yourself. And that's going to help you ration off your travels. That's going to make you better essentially sticking to your budget right assuming that you tell yourself every time i eat out i'm not gonna pass 15 bucks well 
We're oh god, have I have financial a, exercise. I know. I, I have a lot that I, I need to do now. <laughs> I have are, so much homework coming uh, out of we're this. Not feeling, <laughs> we're not feeling burdened. We're feeling inspired. And um, I probably need to remove caviar because when you say $12, <laughs> I want to be clear, that is just like the delivery fee on caviar. <laughs> um, so Uninstall it. Uninstall it from your phone. How dare you? It's my favorite place to get pine and cranes. It's a very confusing feeling. Um, I have one final important question that I've been thinking about for the past 50 minutes, which is, what is your best on broke meal? I can tell you, like... Broke meal or unbroke? I'm broke. I am broke. Oh, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I've had several phases of this. Like, when I was a kid, my parents would do white rice with margarine and soy sauce, and it was delicious, and we ate it a lot. And then, like, when I first moved to New York after college, I could make, like, a $5 foot-long Subway sandwich last, like, three days. I'm just wondering, what's your best broke meal? You know, uh, there there was a time when my mother used to make white rice and fried eggs. Mm, oh, delicious. See, I would eat that for dinner. Is that really a broke now. meal? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, I, and I always knew that we were going through hard times. <laughs> that plate came out. But it's, you know, it's great. Like, or uh, white rice and bananas. But like you just like <laughs> chop up some bananas and mix it up with with rice. That uh, that's my broke. My Those mom's my was the white rice with an egg and maybe a little ketchup. Just saying. Mm-hmm. Oh, ketchup can make any meal dignified. I feel. Bananas and rice. This is not a thing that we have done in our family, but it is definitely something that my kids would enjoy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It goes along with her love of platanos. I get it. Wendy is the best, and I can't wait to see what she does next. That's a wrap on today's episode. Next time, we'll hear from crazy ex-girlfriend co-creator Aline Brosh McKenna. Because all women know we're like, oh, that's a weird itch or that's a weird discharge. We just don't want to talk about it. But we do know, like, I know a ton about jizz. Oh, just yeah. <laughs> just from like mainstream movies, not yeah. from porn, like just from Judd Apatow movies and Seth Rogen yeah. content. I know like a lot about and from growing up in the 80s with like a lot of gross out stuff. Like I know a lot about jizz, but no one was ever talking about the clitorises or yeast infections. Our producer is Kara Hart. The show is executive produced by me, Rebecca Lair, and her, Amy Choi, and the Mashup Americans Creative Studio. Shout out to Shelby Sandlin for handling all of the booking for this show. Our theme music is by DJ Rob Swift with additional music by Alop Moment. Find us on all the socials at Mashup American and don't forget to subscribe. Thank you. Bye. Bye. 